The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Okay, well, good afternoon. I think we'll start with a sit just while people are still coming in. So uh, just do a little guiding and I would invite you in, the th- in line with the theme of today to just begin by noticing your overall sense of ease or something other than ease. Just notice if your body is feeling relaxed and at ease, if your mind is busy and agitated or beginning to settle down. Just inviting you to keep checking in with that intention to be at ease with whatever's happening, even if your mind is agitated. Just, oh, mind is agitated and can we be at ease with that? So begin by just taking a posture that is balanced over your hips and supports being relaxed but awake, aligned, and just feeling the contact of your bottom with the chair, the cushion, letting yourself settle into that support. And feeling your feet in contact with the ground. Hands on your lap. Just the overall sense of sitting here alive, embodied. Beginning to notice breathing in, breathing out. Just letting your attention settle somewhere where you feel the sensations of breathing most clearly. Maybe in your belly, around your abdomen, or in your solar plexus, perhaps. Perhaps you feel it more higher up in your chest or throat or nose. Just noticing if the breath is easeful. If you're trying too hard or something is, something feels tight, just noticing that. wanders, just gently bringing it back to the here and now, the contact with your body, your seat, your breath.
sit in silence, and I just invite you to check in every once in a while. You're at ease. What's pulling you away from it if you're not? Just being aware of that. Can you bring ease in relationship to that experience? Fine to come in. <coughs> Just ease with hearing happening as people come and get settled.
Okay. <clears throat> well, this is quite a large crowd here. We have a few more seats up in front here or on the stage. And there are folding chairs in the counter out there, um, on the side counter out there. So if anyone is not finding a suitable place to sit, let, let's work it out here. <clears throat> There's a couple chairs in here chairs, um, yeah. scattered throughout the hall, so please yeah, uh, come in. Chairs up there, and you're welcome to sit on the floor up here. Chairs over on the left, and, and a couple. Well, there's one in the front row here. There's one over there. Okay. So, welcome to this. Uh, first factor meeting of the Eightfold Path program this year. Um, I'm Chris Clifford, and this is Liz Powell. I'm delighted to be teaching with Liz, and imagine Bruni Davila over here. She will appear later in the year, and uh, we've been teaching this together for a few years now. How many of you were not here last week? Quite a few. Okay. And how many of you have not signed up have not filled out an application or signed up last week on the mailing list. Okay, a few of you. Okay, so the, on the table out there, at the break, we'll, we'll say a little more about this, and you can sign up, and we can talk about, about that. So also, I have all the mentor information for those of you who did sign up. If you have any questions about that, we can handle that on the break also. Okay? Let me just ask, who here is a mentor? Okay, Fiona and Betsy and Stan are here, and I'm here, and, and I'm here. Liz is here. <laughs> so, not too many, but if any of those names ring a bell and you want to introduce yourself, there are a few mentors here. Okay. Hope this is working. Yes. Okay. <clears throat> so we're starting with the factor of right view today. And we talked a little bit last week about why the path begins with right view. Uh, it's also, in a way, the end of the path, because we're going to look at it's, it's the full development of our understanding and wisdom can be called right view, and that's a result of lots of practice. So why is it the, at the beginning? And we talked about how it's at the beginning because we need the orientation. You know, if you're going to climb a mountain, you need a map and some idea of where you're going, right? So right view at the head of the path is this orientation to a, what point of view is helpful. And there's this understanding that our speech and our action, our intentions and our speech and our actions and everything we do really springs from base, being based on these deep-seated views. And we need to begin to uncover them right from the beginning. So what is a view? A Buddhist scholar says, a view is not a simple abstract collection of propositions, but a charged interpretation of experience, which intensely shapes and affects 
thought, sensation, and action. Views are produced by and in turn produce mental conditioning. So it's not just your opinion about something, but it's some deep-seated attitude toward how the world is and how you are in the world that is, is considered a view. I had an example the other day that revealed a view to me. I was reading my email, which is an assortment of various political, you know, summaries of what's going on and this and that. And I was just reading it and not really noticing that I was getting more agitated and kind of depressed as I read along. And then I hit a mail, fortunately, from Jack Cornfield <laughs> that had some, some quotes in it. And one of the quotes that I read was, Ours is not the task of fixing the entire world all at once but of stretching to mend the part that is within our reach. And right as soon as I read that, something in me just deeply relaxed. And I had not really been aware until that moment that I was buying into it, in effect, the opposite of that view. You know, oh, I have to do something about this, which is the tone of all these other emails these days. You right now have to fix all of this. And so, you know, I had been buying into that view, which resonates with some, you know, views that I have in <laughs> a deep-seated way. And so here's this view. And the, the important thing is that I noticed the actual felt sense of the difference. Probably because view was on my mind. It came to mind, oh, this is a view. And if I take this view, huh, and if I take that view, uh, and, you know, pretty soon wanting to crawl off to bed and be depressed. So this is a, just an example of noticing a view and noticing not only whether you believe it or not, but what effect it's actually having on you in the moment. So, what is right view? We also talked last week about right, which is, can be a kind of trigger word for some people. So, we're not, it's not about what you have to believe. It's a view that's most useful if you want to progress toward the end of suffering. It's a practical, pragmatic, try this. This has been found to work. So, in fact, the Buddha mostly all over the place cautions us against actually getting entangled in views in the sense of you know, metaphysical speculation or theories or abstractions or opinions and so forth. In one place he says, Monks, there are two conditions for the arising of right view. Which two? The voice of another and appropriate attention. So I think that's interesting. I take the voice of another to mean that most of us need to hear some advice on which way to look. You know, we need to have pointed out, try this. And then we need to use our amazing skills of attention to actually try that. Try paying attention in this way. So what is appropriate attention? I want, it's one of my favorite teachings. I just wanted to read a little bit about it as it relates to views also. Here's how to attend unwisely. Was I in the past? Was I not in the past? What was I? How was I? Having been what? What did I become? Shall I be? Shall I not be? What shall I be? How shall I be? Having been what? What shall I become? Or else you are inwardly perplexed about the present. Thus, am I? Am I not? What am I? How am I? What does this being come from? Where will it go? And so, in a way, that reflects the tendency to get lost in his time as in ours in all kinds of speculative kind of religious views and arguments. And also, it's pointing to, aren't we all the time really asking, what does this mean about me and my future? That's something happens and the first thing that pops into our mind before we even see what it is that's happened is, what does this mean about how it's going to be? 
What's going to happen? How am I going to be? So that immediate reactivity to those in that way, this is called the thicket of views, the wilderness of views, the contortion of views, the vacillation of views, the fetter of views. So unwise attention is getting all caught up in speculative views and wondering about things that you can't have any way of figuring out, wondering about the future and so forth. So what is wise attention? A person attends wisely, this is suffering. He attends wisely, this is the origin of suffering. He attends wisely, this is the cessation of suffering. He attends wisely, this is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. Okay, so that you might recognize that formula as sounding a lot like the Four Noble Truths, which is the usual definition of One of the two main definitions of right view is viewing according to the Four Noble Truths. And the other one is the basic understanding that actions have consequences and that there are wholesome and unwholesome actions that have wholesome and unwholesome consequences. And Liz is going to talk more about that in the second half. But I'm going to uh, talk a little more about the view of right view when taken from the perspective of the Four Noble Truths. I think the view of actions and their consequences is maybe a little more obviously accessible to begin with, you know, about what, what, what you're doing and what it's causing to happen. And then the more we do that, the more we kind of refine our sense of this underlying pattern in all these things, which might be said, what is this flavor of suffering and not suffering? And as we begin to tune into that, then we can begin to take more of a Four Noble Truths view. So the Four Noble Truths are usually stated as the truth of suffering, the truth that craving is the cause of suffering, the truth that there is an end to suffering, and the truth that the Eightfold Path is the way to the end. And so the path is the Fourth Noble Truth. So it's a little bit circular, but anyway, it all fits together. Um, So I want to talk today... um, a couple contexts for the Four Noble Truths. First, as providing a wise orientations about our relationship towards suffering. And second, as ways to attend wisely to our direct experience. So the truth of dukkha, this word that's called suffering, you probably know is dukkha, and you might hear that word in the Pali language. And it's often translated different ways, stress, suffering, It has a range of meaning from dissatisfaction all the way to deep despair and stress and anxiety and frustration in between. And the thing is that we need to really get a feel through our own investigation of what is meant by this term. And this involves learning to distinguish a couple of aspects of situations. The unavoidable pains and losses in life. The the, and that's one thing. And in the second sense, how this flavor of dukkha comes to arise and get stronger in relation to those events through the way that we identify with them or our reactions or our clinging and denial and so forth. That really is the kind of dukkha that the Buddha is talking about working with. <clears throat> so in the first sense, he says birth is dukkha, death is dukkha, losing what we love, not getting what we want, getting what we don't want. All this is just the truth of life here as a human being. 
Sometimes that it's described in terms of the eight worldly winds. I don't know if you've heard that, but gain and loss, pain and pleasure, uh, praise and blame, uh, fame and ill repute, or high and low status. I've heard that described as. So, you know, and you can go on and on, right? Health and sickness and being agreed with and being disagreed with. (laughs) Everything you can think of that comes in this duality is just the nature of life. And then beneath these obvious situations there's this more subtle and pervasive kind of dissatisfaction or frustration with the constantly changing nature of things we just can't ever get all our ducks in a row and then they hold still you know that just doesn't happen things keep changing no matter how much we'd like our ideas and our habits and our concepts to just keep working and fit reality we'd like to know what's going to happen we'd like to control what's going to happen We like to at least control our own self-image, you know, how we can see ourselves and how we are seen by others. The more we look into that, the more elusive it gets. And so there's a deeper level of dukkha involving just uh, continuing to try to grasp at controlling reality. So the move that's called for by this first noble truth is where we turn to recognize and simply acknowledge when we are suffering. Can we quit running from the discomfort and instead turning to understand it, to seeing and feeling what our resistance might be adding to it? You can spend a lot of energy saying, this shouldn't be happening, this shouldn't be happening, why me, I hate this. And that's very different than being able to say, okay, now this is happening. Given that this is happening, what's my relationship to it? And how can I use the power of attention and intention to lead to more or less suffering around it? So many gazillion times I'm in some state of distress and I'm just running around, you know, and I'm not really noticing. Like reading the email the other day, I'm just not noticing that it's, I'm just being run around trying to fix and change something. And when I can notice, oh, this is, that thing is happening where I get all run around trying to change something. If I can just stop and admit, okay, right now this is dukkha. This (laughs) this <laughs> situation of feeling so run around and helpless is dukkha. And that's the first step toward being able to transform our relationship with it. So some of these less wise views about suffering that we mostly tend to bring to it until we start studying something like this path. Right away, you know, why me? Why is this happening to me? Or who can I blame? Or blaming myself for not being able to fix it? Or blaming someone else? Blaming what's gone wrong with reality these days? You know, it seems like something (laughs) but you know it's just being itself (laughs) change is happening opinions are blossoming forth so uh the other the other unwise thing is believe really believing that you can fix it and a lot of us deeply need to believe we can fix this and we should be able to fix this you know we should be able it should be possible to really avoid all the pain and suffering if only we knew the secret or if we bought enough insurance or if we bought insurance on the insurance or something and those are those are unwise views so it's so different when you when you just realize that it's not about you but it's our inherent human condition there's an author that i like uh, mary pfeiffer is her name And she said this on a a sounds true thing. She was depressed. And she says, I was reading about depression during this time. And the more I read, the more damaged I felt. The more I felt damaged and unique, as if I were a list of symptoms and neuroses and so on. 
But when I switched to Buddhist writing, I stopped feeling damaged immediately. I felt something much different. I felt human. I felt as if I was member of the human race of seven billion people who suffered, and that I, like everyone else, to avoid suffering, would need to learn some skills. So that's such a different view or such a different attitude toward whatever is befalling you in the moment. So the wise view implied by this first noble truth is that difficult things happen and that we can discover that we're much more capable than we thought of bearing with certain kinds of difficulties, taking them less personally. And then we discover this kind of confidence and interest in our ability to learn and investigate the workings of the mind and how that adds to the suffering or how it makes less. So that brings up the second noble truth. The truth of the arising of suffering, what gives rise to this additional avoidable kind of dukkha is called craving. So the Buddha has identified this particular way that we relate to the difficulties of life by grasping at, clinging to, or conversely feeling hatred and aversion and resistance toward what happened, toward what's happening. And this is the point in our mind where this experience of extra dukkha begins to arise. So what we're usually doing is that we're so pursuing the fixes and the changes and the blames that we don't really notice the effect that that attitude is having on us. How much stress it is to constantly run around trying to feel like you have to fix everything or that you have to figure out who to blame or who to be angry at. So this, it's starting to turn and look at the cost of that actual attitude and seeing, is this really... And furthermore, most of those attitudes are not that effective. I know I'm a deep believer in the, somehow the virtue of worrying. You know, that if I'm sitting there in my chair reading about the state of the world, I'm not doing my duty if I'm not feeling miserable. But I'm not actually doing anything besides sitting there <laughs> debilitating myself, <laughs> you know, toward, uh, away from being able to do anything useful in the future. So question these assumptions about the value of being worried at every second of the day about things that you have no control over. So we can look at this, and it really takes a lot, of, a lot of years of practice and subtly looking into what is the difference between, we're not saying you can't want something, intend something, work towards some admirable goal, working toward justice and social improvement, that's all fine. But what's the difference between doing that and having being driven by this state of craving and, and aversion behind it? And that's a, what we need to research during this year. So, you know, what is this sense of urgency or desperation or addictedness or obsessiveness or drivenness that makes... Of course, we all want, you know, better things to happen and we have our little ways of working on it and... Why add all this dukkha to it? And how can we learn the difference between those two? So there's an unwise view of the cause of suffering, which is that the only way to get rid of suffering is to get what we want or get rid of what we don't want. And that's kind of the basic default human view. And the view that this ought to be possible and there's something wrong with me if I'm not doing it somehow. So the wise view that's reflected in this second noble truth is that we first we need to turn to look inward to notice what are we how are we relating to this and get interested in exploring what that is. 
And then we can, we can take it to the next level. We can take the formula of the Four Noble Truths. What gives rise to craving? Okay, craving is a cause of suffering. Why are we craving? And what, how did craving get started here? And what brings craving to an end? And what's the path that brings craving to an end? And so, you know, you're really starting to take apart your own mind and notice at that moment when that grip of, oh, I have to immediately change the world happens. And how can you, how can you learn to back off from that? So the third truth is the truth of the cessation of dukkha. So the more often we can remember to recognize a moment of dukkha, and then just in that, as I was saying, just in that moment of recognizing it, there's a little more space around it. Something has released a little bit. Now you're dealing with a phenomenon that you're kind of bigger than, that you can look at and investigate. And that's so different than just feeling like you're your whole screen is filled with the reality of that phenomenon and you can't even breathe until you fix it all. So tasting little bits of relief in those moments is the beginning of realizing what's meant by this truth of cessation of suffering. I remember when it was so clear, it was like, I think it was my first, first or second retreat and I had what's called a Vipassana romance <laughs> at this retreat. There was somebody there that I was, didn't know, but you know, that's the one I was attracted. And, and, and I was so aware of being aware of this person, you know, like, oh, they're over there. You know, I could hardly do my walking meditation because that person's over there. And then, and then there was a beautiful moment one morning when I woke up, I walked up to the top of the hill at the retreat center, and it's a beautiful blue sky, and it was gone. <laughs> that feeling was not there. And this tremendous freedom of not caring. I mean, it was like being out of prison, you know. And, then, and, and it was so clear to me, oh, this is what they mean by, you know, being attached and then not being attached. The mind obsessed and the mind unobsessed. And all through that retreat, I would go back and forth between being obsessed and not being obsessed. And just, it was like being, oh, let out of jail when the mind would let go of the topic for a minute. So the important thing is to really begin to notice these moments because that's the only thing that's really going to teach your deep undermind what to do. It's like, you know, you're training a puppy. You, you, if you want it to eat, you can show it some treats, you know. If you want it to do a trick, I mean, you show it some treats and it learns how to do it. Your mind has to really register not only that this is pleasant, but that it has something to do with letting go. You know, something to do in contrasting it with the moment of holding on and the moment of letting go. And you see that over and over again. And something is learning that, oh, it's actually feels better to let go. And then there are all these potentials for beautiful qualities of the heart, confidence, strength, courage, goodwill, kindness, compassion, joy. These things can begin to come up when the mind is not so clouded by immediately gripping on to something. And then you begin to have some confidence that there are more resources that will appear and and come to your support when you need them in times of difficulty. And a lot of this moment has to do with letting, with this moment of sensation, uh, cessation, has to do with letting go of our mental images and concepts of what would be better or worse over there or then, or in the future, somehow. Or we split our minds, and our mind leaves the present and gets glommed on to some image of how great it's going to be. And then we lose track of the present. So 
This is the wrong view of thinking that this, the end of suffering is necessarily finding happiness and security as we imagine it over there, then, someday. You know, got to have it there. And the right view that's related to the cessation is that it's right here. If we can relax that inner grip, that inner peace and freedom is always right here and right now. And we, we can find, we're looking for happiness through, indirectly, through these things we think we want. But if we just let go more, it's right here, right now. So along with the spectrum of uh, dukkha from mild dissatisfaction to complete despair, there's a spectrum for the potential of the end of dukkha. There's a famous quote by the Thai teacher Ajahn Chah, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you'll have complete peace. So that's encouraging to realize that this path actually can meet the magnitude of suffering. Sometimes in, in our teachings here, we tend to dwell on trivial examples, you know, being cut off in traffic or something. But the Buddha gave pretty severe examples of people who lost all their families or were having all their limbs cut off. And, you know, he wasn't talking about being annoyed in traffic. <laughs> he was talking about real suffering. And, uh, and there are stories that you hear, you know, of people I've, I've kind of like hearing stories of people who've been in really difficult situations and found that the path was there for them and that they were able to survive, you know, something like torture or terrible loss or terrible illness or something. So it's possible to, uh, to believe that it will go the whole distance. So the fourth noble truth is the path to the end of suffering. And the view behind this fourth noble truth is that this is not just a random, you know, sometimes I suffer, sometimes I don't. What can you do? You know, it's not, it's not that. There is a path. There's, there's a way, there are these deep-seated patterns and deep-seated delusions that we can learn to see through, patterns that we can recognize, and wholesome qualities that we can cultivate. So the perspective of this fourth noble truth is really to take heart to be encouraged, to know that there are practices that you can engage in. Um, and you may find it affecting your views on the whole meaning and purpose of your life. There, there can be a direction to your life. There can be something that's worth doing, a goal that's worth having in your life. And the way to attend to this truth wisely is just to keep testing it out and observe the truth. We're going to do this all year. We're going to look at different suggestions of the Buddha for how to work with certain situations and we'll try them out and see if it works. So um, if you like second opinions on this subject, I, I'm very fond of this quote from Thoreau from the Western tradition. He says, I know of no more encouraging fact than the unquestionable ability of man to elevate his life by a conscious endeavor. It is something to be able to paint a particular picture or carve a statue and to make a few beautiful objects but it is far more glorious to carve and paint the very atmosphere and medium through which we look, which morally we can do. To affect the quality of the day, that is the highest of arts. And I like that he calls out morally, because that's a very big part of the path, and Liz will be exploring this relationship between what we consider wholesome and unwholesome and ethical foundations and... uh, 
the intentions that are woven into the whole path. So the Buddha compares the path with view at its head to a seed that produces results in accord with its nature. So if you plant a bitter gourd seed, you get a bitter-tasting gourd. If you plant a sugarcane seed, you get a sweet-tasting sugarcane. So just as when a sugarcane seed or a grape seed is planted in moist soil, whatever nutriment it takes from the soil and water, it all conduces towards its sweetness and tastiness because the seed is auspicious. In the same way, when a person has right view and the whole rest of the path, whatever bodily or verbal or mental deeds you undertake in line with that view all lead to what is agreeable, pleasing, charming, profitable, and easeful. Why? Because the view is auspicious. So this view is like, it's, and the view is like the inner workings of our minds. It's like the mechanisms of our minds. And whatever input and experience comes into our minds, if it goes through a wise process, when it comes in there, it's going to give wise results. And if it goes into a not very wise, kind of twisted up process in there, it, it might give different kinds of results, unreliable results. So I like this metaphor. So... These two aspects of right view, the one Liz will talk on, that just seeing in an ordinary way how actions have consequences, and then being able to tune in more and more to this quality of suffering, this quality of dukkha, and what are we doing internally that's increasing it or decreasing it moment to moment. And that's the view that we're going to bring to all the experiments that we're going to be running for these nine months. What can we learn about ourselves with regard to this view in whatever we're doing? So we have a few minutes. If uh, anyone has any questions about this at this point, be a good time for them. Bill has a question. We'll be using this mic, and when you use it, um, please hold it close to your mouth and speak into it like that so everybody can hear. If the second noble truth is that the cause of suffering is uh, craving clinging, attachment. seems like the fourth noble truth could be simplified to, to read, just stop craving. Mm-hmm. But is the reason that we have a noble eightfold path is that craving is so embedded in us, so rooted both in DNA and, yeah. and um, um, you know, conditioning that we need to break up that into baby steps. Yes, right. And so then they need to be spelled out for us. Yeah. yeah, it's unlearning very deep habits, you know, and seeing through, I mean, really getting right view is not just understanding it intellectually. If you understood what I said today, that doesn't mean you have right view. <laughs> it means you kind of understand how to head toward right view. But in the Buddhist sense, having a view means it's just like gravity, you know. I remember Ajahn Amaro saying, you know, you have the view of gravity, meaning you will not expect to jump off a cliff and live, and when something, you drop something, it falls, you're not surprised. That's a view that you have, you know. So when you really have the right view totally embedded, you wouldn't dream of clinging. It just wouldn't even occur to you to crave or cling, because, whoa, it's like touching a hot stove. But we are very full of habits that, you know, 
deeply believe that it's going to pay to, you know, grasp a little harder or eat that other thing or really scream at those people or something. Yeah, I, I think your insight's an important one, Bill, because maybe you've heard before or you'll hear along the way that this path is not linear, it's interwoven. Yeah. And actually, I, I've been admiring the more years I do this, the way the Buddha really skillfully, kind of arbitrarily, but not entirely arbitrary, broke it into these workable pieces for us. So the pieces of the Eightfold Path give us a way to work on speech and how we make a living and all these different components, our mindfulness, uh, gives us a way to work on that. Um, because if we were just confronted with, okay, you're clinging, go off and fix that, it'd be uh, very tough to spot all of the details of that. So I, I admire the way this is structured to really give us a way to work with it, see it more clearly, unpack the layers, but ultimately it's woven. You'll notice this as you work on one factor, you're like, well, wait a minute, the other factor's here too, and then there's this other one. Yeah. So we'll pass the mic. Anybody else? Someone up here? Can you crave the end of craving? And well, is that skillful? Um, you know, Tanjeff, uh, Ajahn... Tani Saro came and gave a whole day long on that about a month ago. Um, it depends on what you mean by the word craving. It's very skillful to want to not suffer. It is. And so it, we're not saying all wants are bad. If you, It depends on what you mean by that word. I mean, I guess he was trying to say, yes, it's skillful to crave the end of suffering. But to me, the word itself implies a kind of you know, tensing up in a way that's unnecessary. It may be part of it in the beginning. I mean, we have to try all kinds of stuff, but, you know, I... But it's certainly wholesome to strongly desire the end of suffering and to work toward that end and to apply yourself and make effort and all that. To my way of thinking, if you say craving, you're a little bit off the mark in how you're relating to your practice. Yeah. Has anybody here ever over-efforted in their practice? (laughs) (laughs) So then you know what craving the end of suffering feels like. It doesn't feel good. Also, to me, craving really has that aspect of keeping too much of your attention on the mountaintop and not enough on the trail in front of you. You know, so you're sitting there just, oh, if only I were enlightened, if only I were enlightened, then all my troubles would go away. And that's not as skillful as other ways of relating to it. That's yeah. a great question though. Yeah, you'll miss, you'll miss those little, you know, there's a lot of freeing up. Even as you study this path, something will go, it'll, it'll loosen up. And there's a lot of little freedoms along the way. So, yeah. Good question. Anybody else? Yes. Thanks. Um, so in relationships, when, like, I'm, for example, practicing um, honest speech and just sharing what are certain things that can, that, for example, my husband would do that creates suffering for me. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sharing this. I'm like, hey, like, this, this is how it's impacting me. 
um, I guess I just would like confirmation that is that that is a wise thing to do compared to you know am I like is that a suffering that I need to kind of figure out on my own mm -hmm. That's a, that's a really important question. And when we get to wise speech, you'll find out that it, it, there's a lot of uh, details to it. So I thought, I, you know, when I was newly doing this practice, I was like, I would, my husband fulminates when somebody does something crazy in traffic. And he really hangs on to it for a long time. He'll talk about it and talk about it. I mean, every day he'll come home from the commute and he'll tell me about it. And I would declare to him early in my practice, John, you're just, you know, look at how much you're suffering. And he's like, I'm not suffering. <laughs> get, get, guess who was suffering? So actually I was saying, you know, stop doing that. I'm really worried, you know, if you get that upset, somebody's going to pull a gun and shoot you. But really, those were my fears, my worries. And after a few years of looking at that, one day he did that same thing in the car. And I was like wow, look at his suffering and look at the, look at my, look at the uh, other driver, you know, doing that stunt was probably immense pressure inside, but I'm actually not suffering over, I was just kind of like, mm-hmm, this is here and this is here. And so it was by spending, hanging out with like exactly what's going on when I'm making a, an honest declaration to him about his suffering. So there's, there's, you're going to love when we get to write speech. <laughs> yeah, because I think uh, relationships or, or even work relationships, uh, relationships with family, friends, it's such a rich area to study. Um, okay, which part's mine and which part's theirs? Great question. Okay, well, what's up next is our breakout opportunity. So, just for the benefit of those of you who weren't here last time, I do want to say we have a special way of holding these opportunities where we get together in small groups and I'll give you a question and we'll go around and just share some of our thoughts on these questions. It's really a time for you to be connected with yourself, to practice staying connected with yourself and with what you're really thinking about this, and to practice articulating it, it's much more about your relationship with staying grounded and staying with yourself than it is a social connection. So you're not so much trying to tell everybody exactly what you, how you want it. You can't say everything about this subject. Just pick something that you want to say and put it out there. And then we ask that there's not direct cross-talk. So nobody's going to give you any advice. Do not give each other advice in relation to what's said. Don't even chime in with, oh, me too, you know, or wow, that's weird, or whatever. No reactions to what people say. Just listen. You're practicing listening, and you're practicing receiving like an offering what the other person says. And then you'll have your turn to say something. So it's really not a social chatting situation. It's a very structured exercise in going around and letting people just reflect out loud on the question. Is that clear enough? And if this is very uncomfortable for you and you just don't want to do this, you're welcome to take a walk and come back and uh, whatever, come back in uh, at 2.15. But most people find that they enjoy this part of it. So we have a lot of people here. 
So let's get into, and so let's spread out, go outside, go sit on the porch. I'll come around and ring a bell. Somebody can go in the conference room. Two or three groups can go out there, maybe sit down. So let's give ourselves a little bit of room and just get in groups of five and just keep it simple. Just take five people near you and migrate somewhere and find a place. And I would like, we're going to do this in the form of one person speaking their piece and then the next person. So each person gets one turn. So we'll have about three minutes per person once one go around. So we need somebody in each group to be the timekeeper because there's too many people here for me to ring the bell. So if you would find somebody in your group who has a, a, a phone or something and can keep the time, give each person three minutes. It's also fine to take less than that. It's fine to fall silent and think for a minute if you need to. Okay? And... Um, just feel free, the timer should feel free to just say time when it's time and then the person can finish their sentence and go on to the next person. So I'm going to tell you the question now so that you can all go out and do this. The question is, what are some of your habitual reactions or responses to your suffering? So what have you already noticed about how you tend to react in the face of loss and gain, I mean loss and pain and whatever you consider suffering and difficulty in your life. What is your default habit? You know? So some of you are fairly new to this. It might be, it's worth raising in consciousness what are your maybe more unskillful reactions like, oh, I always blame somebody or I always cry or, you know. You don't have, also, you don't have to share anything more personal than you want to. Just think of something that you feel comfortable sharing with the group about this. If you've been practicing a while, you could reflect on what you've learned from the practice about skillful ways that you respond to suffering. But what, do you, what is your first, what is your main pattern in responding to suffering in your life? Okay? All right, so let's go into groups of five and spend three minutes each just uh, sharing something on this topic of how do you We're at the beginning of this program. At the beginning of the program, what's your default response to suffering? Okay? Okay, um, nope, yes, come on, okay. I just wanted to make a couple of announcements that would have been ideal to do before the break, but the break sort of happened. Um, on the table out there, if any of you are, did not fill out the online application and you're just coming, or you signed up last week, and you don't have a mentor, and you want a mentor, it's possible there's a little group in San Jose that's trying to form and it's possible that we could have a meeting here, not literally here, but near here, during the hour and a half or so before this meeting each month. But we need to get a headcount because we'd actually have to rent a little space for that. So if you would please, there's two sign-up sheets out there. If you're interested in mentoring, sign up, but really only if you're serious because we like might rent some space based on who signed up. Okay. So if you have questions about this, we'll be around at the end regarding mentoring and all that. 
And also there was one request, is anybody able to give someone a ride uh, to a BART station immediately after we end today? Great. So Kathy, um, th- there were several people who raised their hand. Um, <laughs> thank you very much for doing that. Great. All right, anything else? Yes, what? Um... Oh, I just wanted to point out that Jana's here. She's one of our mentors. So if your mentor is Jana, you can check with Jana at the end also. So, okay, that's all. Thanks. Turning this over to Liz. Great, thank you. So, um, as Chris told you, um, my topic is going to help us figure out as we're thinking about this right view, this overall perspective that can help us look at our stress or our suffering, you know, how, how actually can we go about that? And one of the major ways is another facet of right view, and that is that actions have consequences. Now, that's actually what kama, the Pali word kama, or the Sanskrit word karma, that's what that's about. Um, the word kama in Pali means action. Um, So whether we are aware of it or not, there are innumerable actions that set consequences in motion that we're doing. We're doing them with our body. Um, I'm sure you've experienced that, that something you've done um, in terms of action in the world with you physically has had a consequence for you. And it could be a positive, beneficial consequence. You go for a walk and you feel healthier. It could be an unhelpful, unwholesome consequence. Um, you overindulge in some favorite thing that's not so helpful to your digestive system. So, you know, there's action with your body. Um, there are also actions of speech. How many people here have said something or seen something said that later came back to create struggle or difficulty between people? Is that like 110% of the news these days? So actions of speech have consequences and we can see those all over the place. And then there are actions of mind. Even what we set in motion or what is set in motion through conditioning in our mind has consequences. So I am convinced the entire advertising profession knows this to a T. So this is why there are fast food commercials on right around dinner time or late at night because what we bring to mind sometimes has consequences for not only how we feel mentally, so mind thoughts beget thoughts and The actions we set in motion mentally can make us feel very stressed, can make us feel a great deal of suffering, or can make us feel happy, calm. Our actions of mind have those effects. And also, um, they have an effect in terms of what rolls out from there. So maybe some of you already have had experiences of the power that intentions have. If you set an intention in motion, just in thinking about something, then you're kind of inclined in that direction. So this is important not only because it's where we can see this cause of suffering. We can see the suffering inherent in the actions of body, speech, mind. 
we can also see the suffering or stress in the consequences of those actions. Um, But it's also where we have the opportunity with mindfulness and with this Eightfold Path practice that a little space opens up where we have choice. So I'm guessing most of you have already seen a little bit of that in your mindfulness practice. Whatever your meditation practice is, sometimes you'll, you know, you're, you're, maybe you're new to the practice and you um, observe something for a while and then suddenly uh, something is not as difficult as it was. Or you catch an emotion as it comes up and it doesn't kind of just drag you off into thinking. Or you catch a thought and you realize whether you catch it at the beginning or you catch it along the stream of thinking, you're like, oh, thinking's happening. Those are just thoughts. Um, So this, you know, actions have consequences, yes, but we're not predestined. That's a very important point in Buddhist practice. We're not predestined uh, to just have our conditioning just continue to shape our life in a way that involves stress and suffering. We have conditioning, of course, has uh, created a lot of the thoughts and actions and consequences that we do. And then we can start to spot what those are and give ourselves an opportunity not to do it again, not to reinforce the same kind of clinging or craving that Chris talked about and not, and then pretty soon we don't have the same consequences. Sometimes just by purely noticing. So has anybody here ever had physical discomfort while sitting, brought their attention to it and had it ease up a little? Yeah? Or you had a thought popping, thoughts popping up and you told yourself, ah, thinking is happening. And maybe they eased up a little, you know, over the course of a sitting. So this is really important, this space for choice that opens up. Um, It's a way that we keep conditioning from just continuing to roll out of us and continuing to choose in the direction of craving. Um, We catch ourselves, first of all, the way we catch ourselves is... I think it's important to say, you know, ideally mindfulness helps us catch things in the moment, but my experience has been very often it's after something has happened. You know, we had a conversation we thought was going to go well, and later we suffer the consequences and we recognize that um, it did not go well. So we may only catch, oh, I said it that way, and then they took it this way. So sometimes it's after, maybe even years after something happened, we notice what was the action that had certain consequences. But as we start to do that more and more, pretty soon we're able to notice pretty soon after, or maybe even during. You know, you start to say something, uh, you're tired, you start to say something to a family member or a friend that's kind of snappish, and you catch yourself, and you're like, you know what, I'm sorry, I'm tired. (laughs) my husband and I have a reset button it's like reset (laughs) start over Um, and then ultimately you're able to catch it before the unskillful action takes place and has the consequence that causes you to suffer and this is you know great so even if you back your way into it it's really useful so uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi offers this um, from the words of the Buddha 
Beings are owners of their actions, the heirs of their actions. They spring from their actions, are bound to their actions, and are supported by their actions. Whatever deeds they do, good or bad, of those they shall be heirs. So, in other words, our actions are our responsibility. We're own, we own them. And we come through mindfulness practice to own more and more, on more and more subtle levels. Ah, yeah, I kind of, that was set in motion by these things that I thought or said or did. Um, we inherit the results. <laughs> That's how we're heirs of our actions. Um, we actually, our self-concept, we spring from our own actions in a way. We're shaping ourselves through these mental actions, actions of speech, actions of body. We're shaping how we are in the world, who, or that we're still a who in the world. Um, we're bound to our actions. There's no getting away from it. <laughs> Maybe you've noticed that. A happens, then B happens. You can't just go, oh, <laughs> I didn't do that. And also we're supported by our actions. So we're also the heir uh, or supported by or bound to when we take when we take a wholesome action or useful action, so-called bright comma. Um, so that's good news because, first of all, look at what you've done today. You're, you've signed up to study the Eightfold Path. You've come here. You've meditated. You've interacted with the beginnings of spiritual friends. And these things matter. You're already shaping your experience in the direction of less suffering and more freedom just by doing that. So this is good news that actions have consequences. Um, you may have occasionally heard uh, a mistaken notion that people assign to Buddhism of saying that life is suffering. Maybe you picked up the distinction in how Chris read it to you. Not life is suffering. That is not the belief here. Um, there is practice that leads us to understand there is suffering. Okay, suffering is here. We can discover it. Life is not suffering. <laughs> so um, there is suffering. We can experience it. We can discover the causes. And we have the possibility through the Eightfold Path of coming to a cessation of suffering. And the Eightfold Path becomes not only the practice that we're doing, but also the expression of liberation. People who are walking around totally free of suffering, whoever those folks might be, they're living the Eightfold Path too. So this is a wonderful thing to have set foot on in terms of actions and consequences. So I hope, as, we, as I've been sharing this, that maybe a few examples have come up in your minds of actions you've taken either of mind or speech or body and consequences you've experienced from those. Some that were led in the direction of suffering or stress for you and maybe some have come to mind that led in the direction of less suffering, more freedom. A useful way to get into this practice of right view with respect to actions and consequences is to tune into what feels wholesome and unwholesome. You heard Chris use that, that terminology. Maybe that's something that we don't say real often in common, you know, everyday chatter. But um, 
wholesome and unwholesome carries that idea of healthy or unhealthy, um, could be helpful and unhelpful, beneficial, not beneficial, skillful, unskillful. So there are a lot of different, each of those pairings might give you a different feeling for some territory you can look at here. Um, When it's unwholesome, unskillful, unhelpful, unbeneficial, it may also be unethical um, or hinder our spiritual development. So maybe you've heard um, spiritual teachers say, if your practice isn't moving forward, something to look at is ethics. So this wholesome and unwholesome is a place to look. Sometimes it's very subtle what's unwholesome and what's coming up in you that's standing in your way. Um, And when something is unwholesome, it tends to create more suffering for us and for others, or for both. So the Buddha offers us a list of 10 unwholesome actions, um, divided into these areas of bodily action, verbal action, and mental action, to notice areas, again, one of those little helpful breakdowns, to notice areas we can notice that we tend to uh, create or continue suffering or stress. Um, so these we might call these wrong action, not in the sense of right or wrong, like, you know, good or bad, I, but more in the sense of these are the wrong tool for the job if you plan to be more free. So the unskillful or unwholesome bodily actions, number one, destroying life. So destroying sentient life. Now I'm guessing uh, people uh, sitting here don't go around killing uh, living beings very much. (laughs) Um, However, you know, there might be other examples of ways in daily life that you participate in the way uh, life of a sentient being is destroyed, killed. You know, and this is, so it's a, these reflections are layered. We can look more and more deeply. When I first moved into my house, the previous uh, person who lived there left a box of what was called snail and slug death. You know, and this was before I undertook this practice, but just the name of that was so repulsive. And I was, I did notice that the plants in the garden were being, eaten. You know, there were bite marks and chewed holes through everything. So I was like, okay, what do I do to solve this problem? I'm not going to put out snail and slug death. Um, But I started to try and look for very clever ways. And I found online, oh, if you put out little dishes of beer, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll get drunk and fall into it. Well, I just, I think I just had a bunch of drunk snails careening around my garden. So that didn't help. Um, um, and then I, then I thought, well, you know, I don't really want them eating my garden, but maybe if I, I just relocate them to the compost heap. Um, but when I picked them up, I would pick them up, I could feel them shudder a little. And I just thought, oh, it didn't feel good. So I decided, free-range snails. <laughs> I'm leaving them alone. And you know what's interesting what has happened is that the population balanced itself and my plants are not being eaten. Uh, they take some, but I don't care. And we're, we're at peace with one another. So that's an example of destroying life. I could have chosen to use snail and slug death 
or, you know, let them drown themselves in beer. But instead, I, or pick them up and relocate. I decided to forget all that. I'm going to leave them alone. Uh, I, they never did anything to me besides eat a few greens. So that's an example of, you know, some of the layers you can find in yourself around destroying life. Other bodily actions, taking what is not given is an unwholesome bodily action. So again, I'm guessing people uh, in this room have probably not run around um, robbing and, and burglarizing a whole lot. However, however, this can be studied on a, a deeper level of, you know, what is another way of taking what is not given? I found one of the first ones that cropped up for me was interrupting another person when they're speaking. You're kind of taking their airspace away. Or you use a pen in the office and you, you know, you, it ends up in your pocket and it ends up in your house and you're like, oh, that's an office pen. They really didn't offer that to me for home use. Um, so we can look at layers. Uh, certainly not taking someone's possessions. You know, not, uh, I've learned not to read, you know, not to read somebody else's subscription before they read it. Maybe they want to read their newspaper first, right? Um, a third unwholesome bodily action, wrong conduct in respect to sense pleasures. Has anybody here ever overindulged in a sense pleasure? So easy to do, right? We think, we think it's relaxing to binge watch television. Or we think, you know, the sweet is going to taste good, it's not going to be a problem. But um, wrong conduct in respect to sense pleasures can be a slippery slope whereby people suffer mightily from addiction, addictions of all kinds, or it just, at the end of an afternoon of watching television, maybe you just don't really feel that great. Maybe your energy's kind of been drained way more than you think. So sense pleasures are a, an important area to pay attention to bodily action. So now we have the list of verbal actions. You know, starting to get into that area of which verbal actions set in motion stress and suffering. So certainly false speech. And... Of course, outright lying is very unhelpful and unwholesome to your relationships. But what about leaving a false impression by omitting information? You know, it's embarrassing. It's, you don't want to get into it. But there are times when we can leave information out that's important. And in effect, we're um, engaging in false speech. Or maybe we exaggerate for effect, like it was terrible. The restaurant was horrible. The service was lousy. Or um, somebody asks us a question and we give an answer. And then if we really think about it, we are aware, I don't know that for a fact. It's kind of speculation. I, I just gave an answer based on my opinions or something. But I'm not sure that that answer is really a true speech. So we can get into studying False speech of all kinds. Slanderous speech. Okay, have you ever watched the news and vehemently disagreed with what was said and started saying a few choice words about the speaker? Um, I, I think there's a lot of that going on right now. So slanderous, you know, saying uh, very negative things about another person can lead to a lot of suffering for you as well as others. Harsh speech. So, you know, if you're, 
your patience wears out and you snap at a friend or a family member or a child or someone. Um, That could be harsh speech. How about how you talk to yourself in your most difficult moments? You know, how, how many people, and you don't have to raise your hand for this one, have a pretty harsh inner critic? A lot of us suffer from that. So that's a major source of stress. And then finally, idle chatter, which is gossip. I'll bet everybody here could come up with an example of when someone, either you or someone else, was really hurt by gossip or chit-chat about their, something about them. So those are the verbal actions, unwholesome actions. Then there are the mental unwholesome actions. So covetousness, really wanting what somebody else has. So this is a good one to study. Ill will. You know, I know uh, people who currently are, have given up watching the news because they find there's so much ill will in them that comes up from watching and listening um, to some of the political stuff that's going on. Um, but, you know, noticing their own suffering around that ill will. Um, wrong view, finally wrong view. So we think some action we're taking with our mind is not suffering, and it actually is, for example. So <laughs> one that's caused me suffering, and this is a minor one compared to, you know, there are many serious ways that our thoughts can make us suffer. So, um, you know, maybe you know people who can worry themselves literally sick. You know, so wrong view, uh, thinking that worrying, Chris alluded to this, thinking that worrying is actually going to help you with something. But also, um, you know, even minor ones, like I, I notice I have an endless jukebox in my head. And when I'm on retreat, I have in the past suffered from oh man, if I could only stop hearing this music, you know, there's a theme song for every situation. So, you know, there's nothing wrong with music. But notice my, you know, unwholesome suffering around thinking that listening to a ton of music over and over and over again is going to be beneficial. It is pleasant, but it can also lead to retreats where somebody's singing in your head a lot. So um, what can be really useful is to notice when something we've thought, said, or done has resulted in a physical sensation that it wasn't wholesome. I think I shared with you the shuddering of the snails just left me with a very heavy heart and just didn't didn't physically feel right. Um, Sometimes we can notice an emotion or a feeling that comes up as a result of something that's unwholesome. Maybe we don't know it until we're feeling stressed or we're feeling like something's a little bit off. Um, We said something and then we noticed somebody's facial expression. We thought, "Uh uh-oh, something's a little bit off. And we can go back and look at what was said. Um, Sometimes a pleasant emotion tells you something is unwholesome for you. So um, I noticed that my mind loves to plan. I've done, I've conditioned my mind to mobilize a lot of physical energy around planning. And that can be really pleasant for a while. Like, I'm going to get this done and this done and this done. But I've started to notice how that pleasant feeling is not so great for me, actually. It's a kind of little high that I get off of being obsessed about the future. Not helpful. 
So um, we can, and then we can notice feedback that we get from uh, mental actions. Like we find ourselves suddenly in a mental state that um, isn't conducive to being free of stress. So it takes a lot of flavors. So um, as we go through this Eightfold Path, um, we can first, very often where we're starting is noticing what's unwholesome and unhelpful. And the Buddha, as we go through these path factors, you'll notice, really starts with the kind of what not to to do if you want to be free list, the unwholesome list. Um, And it's only by working with these unwholesome things, not being afraid of letting them come up and really studying them. I mean, really take the time to get to know them like an intimate friend because that's the way you're going to liberate. Not by going, oh, okay, you know, bad speech, check. I'm on to the next thing. You actually need to know these very well for them to let go of you. Um, So the consequences of our actions, our comma may show up right away or it may not show up for a long time. It may not even show up within this lifetime. So whether or not you believe in multiple lifetimes in some sense, um, actually it doesn't have to be personal. I'm sure you can think of things that people are doing right now that will have an impact for future generations that are unwholesome. Like this is our entire relationship with um, concerns about the environment. You know, what are we doing and how is it going to affect the human beings that are coming after us? Um, So, hopefully this helps you have a more complete picture of right view and how this perspective really is put into action or into motion in this study of, okay, what are my actions and what are the consequences? What is that? What's rolling out of that? And how does it affect me? Um, So... We're going to give you a chance again to get into groups and um, spend some time in groups of five again. Maybe you can five, find five other people near you that you don't know yet, so a new, slightly new group. Um, so we'll do the same thing of breaking out and going into different spaces. Um, we will have until uh, 3.15 to do this, so that's um, about 20 minutes. So you've got plenty of time, but it'll take you time to get settled and time to go around. We're going to do the same practice. Speak for three minutes, then um, somebody keep time in your group and let it go to the next person. And then if you end up with time left over at the end and everybody's spoken their piece, you can revisit it. But again, we're not here to give each other advice or comment on one another's sharing. We're just here to, in your sharing, to you know say stuff you don't already know. Try to find the new revelations in there at, at, as you, you know, search inside. And other people are engaged in a mindful listening activity. And as you listen mindfully, you may notice how, you know, what happens inside of you. Very important. So the question is, what can support you in daily life to notice the unwholesome things that I mentioned and to cultivate the wholesome, which would be the absence of those things or the positive uh, virtues that can come instead. So, for example, instead of taking life, maybe you would respect life or help, help life along, do something positive for the living creatures around you or just simply not harm them. 
that would be good if we just didn't harm one another. Um, So what can support you in daily life to notice the unwholesome and cultivate the wholesome? So please find four new people, you know, roughly groups of five. Your group can be slightly more or less than that. And find a space to get settled. And we'll ring a bell a little bit before 3.15. So enjoy the discussion. You don't have to be compulsive about finding new people. Just <laughs> yeah, settle and settle. <laughs> I turned it on. Yeah, I was just going to say the groups were great because I get to see different people's perspectives and experiences. Um, and it makes me more, um, gives me space to take a different view and really learn from it. I can give more feedback. I, at first, had so much trouble in the last session with the structure of it because everybody gets three minutes and you're not supposed to really interact or give feedback or try to help them with whatever they're struggling with. And I just thought that was such a challenge. (laughs) And so it's really cathartic to just sit and listen and, like, that's the whole interaction. So you wound up being okay with it? Are you no, I, yeah. I mean, okay. I like the challenge. It's good. Yeah. <laughs> um, there was somebody who had their hand it up on different. the stage. Thank it's you. very different than how we usually interact. Yeah, I think the listening is great. And I think it would be even better. We struggled with what the, what the question was. And some of the, um, you listed a number of things. And we're like, where's the list? And luckily, someone in our group actually took notes and wrote down the whole list. And we were able to reference it. But I don't think everybody had that advantage. Um, similar to the first question, also people struggle with, oh, well, how do you define, um, what's the word? How do you define? Suffering. Yeah, and we're like, okay, then we spent about three minutes trying to define what suffering was. So I, I don't know if we have projector or even like notes to hand out something to kind of anchor the conversation after we get into groups and everybody then cleanly forgot what you just said. (laughs) That would be very helpful. Um, That's a great suggestion. Thank you. And also, please know, in any of our discussions here, whatever's coming up for you is fair game, even if it's a little bit not the the precise question. You know, if just, you know, something... Uh, came up as you were listening that's also okay to share because this is your exploration so 
Well, just on the heels of that, I had the completely opposite um, reaction to not remembering the list, which was that I tend to be in my head and being cerebral all the time anyway, so the fact that I couldn't remember it forced me to just feel whatever it was I was feeling about the list mm-hmm. and go with that. <laughs> yeah. So both, both methods can work. We're going to each find that we each have our own way through this, right? Different things will be appropriate for different people. Uh, I also wanted to um, uh, share my realization of the difference between suffering and pain, and that pain is not always suffering. Um, And reflecting back on some very difficult childhood experiences that were painful, but yet because they were wrong, which I knew they were wrong, it didn't create suffering for me. The suffering was uh, not knowing what to do about that and that the adults in the picture were not there. (laughs) And uh, where are they? But since it was not for me, to carry it was not a suffering. And only later as an adult did I more fully understand that, that then called me to then consider actions to take, which you couldn't, I couldn't as a child, but as an adult. But still there was no suffering. The body pain of the experience is still there, but there's also no suffering from the pain either. So I thought it was... Wonderful that the Buddha spoke in terms that were very clearly distinguishing so that the question, the the terms were wholesome and unwholesome and suffering, uh, neither of which, in which pain can be not, can be part of the experience, but not the definitive part, you know, the definitive part of the experience. Could you pass it down that way, please? I was just wondering if you guys had an opinion on positive versus negative judgment of beings. Like, let's say, you could say, like, there's a dog barking. You could say, wow, that's a really loud dog. Or you could look at, like, a flower and say, like, that's a really nice-looking flower. Do you have an opinion on, like, the difference between those? So how do you, this is the thing about this path that we're studying. What's the difference for you as you say those two things? To notice that. So how is that for you as you, as you do that? I think you're noticing that there's a different impact on the way you put it, right? Mm-hmm. Thank you. Huh? Is that helpful? Because yes. I, I actually think you discovered something right there about suffering. Is one thing that I noticed in the group is that it feels like we're all kind of developing more sensitivity to hearing like that kind of inner voice of like conscience. Like uh, when we're talking about um, unwholesome action um, in our group and it seemed like there was kind of, you know, like this kind of sense of either guilt or remorse or like, you know, wish that we could be 
you know, be more ethical. Um, but I think, you know, it's just, it's really interesting to kind of hear these, hear that there's a pretty strong feeling that, you know, the more we can listen to that voice, like it'll end up leading to, um, you know, to better outcomes. Um, so that was pretty cool. Good. Right behind you. I enjoyed uh, this uh, earlier talking about um, habits and our habitual, what whatever our habitual thing seems to be. And um, a number of people kind of mentioned something that was one of my habits, but I hadn't mentioned it because it just didn't come to mind. And I was thinking, wow, this is really common, yippee, you know, because I, I think sometimes um, when it's something habitual, we tend to isolate and think, oh, this is just my thing. And um, there's a freedom in being able, you know, to listen and hear it out loud and go, wow, maybe I can work with this because it's, Pretty common, you know. Excellent. Um, there was a blue mic around. If it could be passed forward to Natalie, uh, right here. Yeah. Thank you. And then we'll we'll go over to you after. I was just looking again at my notes, and you mentioned something that was really interesting for me. Um, it was when we're speaking to say something that we don't already know, and to notice what happens within us. Um, when I started answering the last question uh, in group, I hadn't really thought about the question too much, and so I was speaking from kind of going by the moment. And now that I think back to what I was feeling, I think I was uh, experiencing um, a level of unease given that I was, a part of me was, I noticed a part of me wanting um confirmation maybe from those around me about what I'm saying and um, and I just kept talking but I just noticed that and I think that is part of um, I guess it's great because that is something that I am working on and it came so it came up as I was speaking mm. um, and it's a helpful exercise to not have a back and forth of much of yeah me too right like mm -hmm. oh sure yeah that's great um yeah that came up for me yeah. thanks Thank very interesting one of the things okay uh, one of the things i'm noticing and i have noticed is something that like you react a feeling or, or you might call it suffering um, it can affect how you relate to people for and uh, and your mood and how you can continue to think about different situations arise for a long time. For example, if I've had a particularly difficult relationship um, interaction last night, um, I can still feel it today um, in how I relate mm -hmm. to people. Or on the other hand, if I spent last night doing like a 40-minute loving-kindness meditation, um, it shows up in how I relate to people. It's just different. So I guess my question is, so sometimes, you know, I know that, you know, you pay attention and you also notice how things are impermanent and come and go. But sometimes your uh, suffering can last a while. So in those cases, do you just kind of like keep checking in once in a while and say, oh, it's still there? Or what form it's taken? It's taken a different form. Um, or 
So is, is that the skillful way to deal with it? Or, to, or is it more skillful to say, yeah, I know it exists and I'm just going to move on and pay attention to other things? You know, I'm appreciating how you, you know, there's kind of a skillfulness in you that recognized that whole thing, first of all, that you, that something from last night is having an effect today. And also that one opportunity would be to check in on it. Another opportunity would be to say, I know it's there. So this is a practice of experimentation and just seeing what the results of those two different things are. And, you know, really lovely to notice how what happened last night can condition today. Very interesting. Can someone pass the green mic over? Thank you. Yes, I just want to appreciate the way the group was organized and the instructions was given to listen and hear. And I found that this was, the setup was not to listen others. It was a wonderful setup to listen ours myself also mm. and that I really appreciate thank you well I think we might can be I just ask a quick question quick question yes <laughs> so the, the instruction was to tune in to what feels wholesome and unwholesome or beneficial or unbeneficial and then what so you tune in and you notice, and then what do you do? My turn. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a lot of faith in the power of noticing to kind of reveal what it is that you can do. You know, I wouldn't be in a rush to decide to do something, but notice and notice what, no- what effect noticing has, you know, and just let things unfold in that way. Obviously, the long-term desire is to cultivate the wholesome and not cultivate the unwholesome but how to do that is an exploration that has a large portion of listening to yourself and you know sensing and noticing and <coughs> yeah. okay we're at the end of our time here um, let's just sit for one minute just let the energy settle here May the benefits of this time that we've spent together starting on our study of the path be a benefit to ourselves, everyone here, and the wider circles of everyone we know, and 
ultimately the whole world and all beings everywhere. If you'll return your name tags to the table, we can bring them each month. And uh, if you have any questions or interest in those groups to sign up for, if anybody's still wanting mentoring or anything about that, we'll stick around and find out what happens there. Actually, would like a, a little bit of feedback.